1 Peter chapter 1. And for many years, our country has been pretty tolerant of Christians and Christianity. But it looks like those days are coming to an end. There's increased hostility in our culture towards anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus or desires to live according to his word. It's more difficult, it's more costly to identify with Christ. There are temptations in our own hearts to give into this culture and its values, to allow evil and sinful things to be accepted. We also face the temptation to just head for the hills and retreat to lock ourselves away from this world. And there's that temptation to doubt. Because as we try to live faithful lives and we experience hostility and persecution, we wonder if God even cares. And in this letter, the Apostle Peter reminds Christians of who they are in him, in Christ, and of the resurrection hope that they have while they face suffering here in this world. What's amazing about this letter is that how much we can identify with the author and the audience. The author is Peter, the apostle Peter. And Peter was a basket case, just like all of us. We can identify with the audience because the Christians that he was writing to were facing the same type of social hostility that we face currently. They were not in danger of losing their lives at this moment in which Peter was writing to them, but they were definitely in danger of losing their jobs and losing their relationships, social status in society. And I believe that this letter will bring much encouragement and conviction for us to live faithful lives for Jesus as we probably will face more and more hostility and persecution as the days get darker. There's no need to give in to the ways of this world and to just try to fit in. And if we do, we may find out that we were never saved in the first place. There's no need to retreat from the world because as Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. We are called to suffer faithfully in hopes that God will provide opportunities to share the gospel. We have a hope that is beyond this world. That's what Peter is getting at here. Because our Savior rose from the dead, we have the promise of resurrection life here and in the world to come. And although the context of this letter is in the midst of suffering, that is not Peter's main focus. Peter wants his readers to constantly be reminded of the grace of God. His intention was to ground these Christians in the gospel in order to face the steady persecution, the steady dislikes, 
the rejection, the insults. And he does this by putting the hopes of the saints in something stronger than their circumstances. And he teaches them how to live joyfully and faithfully as God's chosen people, even in the midst of those circumstances. And so I'm excited to study this timely book with you all. We're going to be in it for a while, but it's going to be great. It's going to be helpful as we face a hostile world. And so let's turn our eyes to God's word. This morning we'll be looking at the first two verses of the letter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us to see the love for which you have for your people. We pray that your word would bring conviction, that it would bring encouragement, that it would bring comfort as we seek to live lives in obedience to Jesus in a world that's becoming more and more hostile towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were asked which of the disciples that you identify with most. I think most of us would probably say Peter. There's so much about him that we can relate with. He had these incredible high moments in his life <laughs> and then some just flat out extreme low moments. And Peter's first introduced to us in Matthew's gospel in chapter four. Peter was a common fisherman. He was a normal, everyday guy. But Jesus chose Peter. He chose him to be one of his disciples. And in the context of Jesus' ministry is where we see these high and low moments of Peter. So let's focus on the high moments. Peter was one of the three disciples that saw and experienced Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. What a moment. He was one who was privileged to share in Jesus' last meal here on earth. And in Acts, when the Holy Spirit fills the believers, including Peter, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people believe in Jesus. And then a little bit later on, Peter preaches another sermon and 5,000 people believe. Peter had some really high moments. In Matthew 16, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter is on a roll. He's getting it. Obviously, the Lord revealed this to him, but he's getting it. And in fact, 
after he confesses this foundational truth that Jesus is the son of the living God, Jesus gives Peter a new name. Because before this, his, his birth name was Simon. But the new name given to Simon is the name that we all know him by, Peter, which means rock. Could you imagine Peter looking around at all the other disciples who didn't get their names changed by Jesus, going, I'm the rock. Jesus said, I'm the rock. Well, here comes the low moment. Right after giving Peter his new name, Jesus begins to tell his disciples he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and raised on the third day. And keep in mind, Peter had just told Jesus that he was the son of the living God. But what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He rebukes the son of God and says, this will never happen. Yikes. And so it gets worse. Instead of calling Peter the rock in this moment, Jesus calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but setting your mind on the things of man. What a low moment, right? We've all been there. But a little later on in the Gospels, Jesus foretells that all the disciples will fall away. What does our friend Peter say? Though all they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So Jesus tells, tells him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter speaks up again. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. What happens? We know Peter denies Jesus three times. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, there's this moment as the rooster crows and Peter denies Jesus a third time. Jesus looks, he locks eyes with Peter, and Peter remembers what Jesus said, and he leaves weeping. Peter had some low moments. But there is this profound moment of God's grace seen in John chapter 21. Jesus had just resurrected from the dead, and the disciples are out in a boat fishing. And the apostle John, who calls himself the one that Jesus loved, sees Jesus on the shore and tells Peter, Instead of getting all the disciples to row back to the shore, what does Peter do? He jumps into the water and swims to Jesus. Peter is impulsive, and yet he loves Jesus. He wants to be near him. And in John's, a little later on in John, in this scene, John chapter 21, we read this. And when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And so Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter needed to be reassured after his denial. He needed to be reassured that his denial did not disqualify him. We see this beautiful picture of God's grace. Peter understood God's grace because after Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus gives Peter the ability to turn to him and confess him three times, confess his love three times. And then Jesus makes clear to Peter that his love for him must now translate to his people. Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. And as we think about Peter's life and the letter we are about to study, Peter is doing just what Jesus told him to do. He's feeding his sheep. Peter takes all that he has learned and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit gives wisdom and comfort to Christians who are suffering. This is the man who wrote the letter that we will be studying the next couple months. And this morning we're only going to be looking at two verses. These verses help us answer questions that we should always ask as we start studying a book of the Bible. Who wrote it? And who was it written to? But even more importantly, these two verses are full of gospel depth. They're worthy of the time that we're going to give them this morning. And the main point of our text today what I would love for you to leave here knowing and remembering is this, that the election of God strengthens believers who live in a hostile world. The election of God strengthens believers who live in a hostile world. Take a look, take a look again at verse 1. It says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, we know Peter is the one who wrote this letter, and most likely he wrote it from Rome later on in his life. And given all that we know about Peter, he was writing out of a lifetime of wisdom and conviction. And this letter was not written at a distance from suffering, but from someone who knew what these Christians we're going through. It was written by someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus' earthly ministry, an eyewitness to his death, and an eyewitness to his resurrection. He was a personal 
friend of Jesus. Peter experienced both rebuke and grace. He knew the struggle. And so he wrote to shepherd the flock. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle was someone who had been with Jesus, who was given the authority to teach his truth. Peter was commissioned by Jesus himself. He was sent out to feed his sheep. And so who Peter was and the title that he uses here was clear to those who were reading this letter that he was speaking with authority that was given to him by Jesus. And so what Peter says in this letter is an extension of what Jesus says to his people. And so who was Peter writing to? Again, take a look at verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This letter was written to a predominantly Gentile audience who Peter refers to as the elect exiles of the dispersion. The three words here, elect, exiles, and dispersion, are words that come from the Old Testament. We will see that Peter uses words, phrases, and portions of Scripture from the Old Testament all throughout his letter in order to help his readers see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and how it applies to believers who are under the New Covenant. But he describes these elect exiles in three ways. Their location, their social status, and their spiritual status. So let's first look at their location. As you can see, this letter was not written to a specific church in one town or city, but to Christians who were scattered in a large area of Asia Minor, which is also known as modern-day Turkey. These Christians were scattered all throughout this region. That's why they are called the elect exiles of the dispersion. The word Peter uses here for dispersion points back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel were dispersed or scattered among the nations. And so Peter, using this word, he's, he's trying to say something with it. He's saying that, and now these Gentile Christians... These Gentile Christians are identified as people of God who are scattered. And there's five different areas. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Because Peter wrote this letter to such a wide audience, this letter had to be passed on from place to place. Possibly going in the order in which they're laid out here in the text. This is how Peter their location, scattered throughout regions in Asia Minor. But he also describes their social status. Peter refers to his readers as exiles. Some Bible translations use different words here. Some say strangers, some say pilgrims, some say aliens. They all mean the same thing. As an exile, as a stranger, as a pilgrim, 
You are a temporary resident in a foreign place. These scattered Christians are called exiles. But what does Peter mean by this? In the Old Testament, the word exile was associated with God's people being punished for their sins. Because of their disobedience to God, God allowed the people of Israel to be taken captive by Assyria and by Babylon. And in their captivity, God's people lived in exile. They were strangers in a foreign land. But here Peter is writing to Gentiles who are living in the new covenant era. This is a different type of exile. Instead of being exiles because of God's judgment, they are exiles because of God's grace. Because of his salvation. Since God had given them a new life and given them a new identity in Jesus, they became citizens of a different world. In Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who are in Christ are citizens of heaven, and in turn become exiles in the land in which they live. God's people have always been pilgrims, sojourners, exiles here on this earth. We are exiles. If you are in Christ, this world is not your home anymore. Yes, you own a house. Yes, you have a job here. Yes, you go to school here. You're raising your kids and you're planning a future for them here. But these things in this world are temporary. There's nothing wrong with the things that you own. There's nothing wrong with the plans that you have or the things that you enjoy. But we must remember that these things should not be held on too tightly because they are temporary. And because they belong in a land that's foreign to us. We are exiles. The Christians that Peter was writing to were experiencing the reality of being exiles through insults and intimidations and grumblings and threats. Believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith offensive and strange. We believe that the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe that the Bible teaches that if God created you a certain gender, you have no right to change it. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Our world doesn't like those messages. They don't like those truths. And our world is getting more and more hostile towards the Christian faith. And so we should expect to experience 
more and more what it means to look and live like exiles, to feel like strangers in a foreign land. To be in exile is to be rejected. To be rejected. This is how Peter describes their social status. Exiles are rejected by the world. But the last description is the most important. This is the main point. Their spiritual status. While they may be rejected by the world, while we may be rejected by the world, more importantly, we are chosen by God. We are not just exiles. We are elect exiles. This is so good. Think about what makes us exiles here on this earth. This is Peter's point in these two verses. What makes us exiles? The election of God. The word elect means chosen. Peter is referring back to the Old Testament idea of God choosing a people. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 7, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples God chose the nation of Israel to be his people and what's very interesting about this about his choosing is that it had nothing to do with who they were It had everything to do with his love. The people of Israel were the fewest of all people. They were not impressive. But God chose them out of his love for them. And everyone knew that God's chosen people were the Jews. But now here in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a people of all nations. who believe in Jesus. They have been elected. We have been elected, chosen, and loved by God. And we are not chosen because of our performance or our personalities. We're not saved because we are good people. Every one of us has rebelled against God. And there is no one and has never been anyone who has been worthy of God's sovereign election. And to think differently is to be deceived by your own heart. Because the Bible clearly teaches that no one is good. Not even one. And so God's election here is to be seen as something amazing because it's all of grace. It's all of grace. 
The mention of God's election brought encouragement to these scattered believers who were in exile. God is reminding them through Peter's writing of his great love for them. To be elected means to be eternally loved by God. If you are a Christian, you are eternally loved. And this leads us into the next verse. Look at verse 2. You are elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This doesn't just mean that God knows in advance who will believe in him. It's way more than that. It means that he actually chose us. That he foreloved us even before we were born. There was nothing we did in order to be chosen because he chose us before we were born. And when we had the opportunity to choose, we chose to sin. We chose to rebel against God, and yet he elected us to be saved by the death of his son. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. Jesus teaches the truth of election in John 6, 44, where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father chooses. Romans 8, verses 28 and 30, the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God the Father planned our salvation from the beginning. And now he oversees and directs the salvation of every person that he has chosen. He is the one who takes the initiative. John says it this way, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What amazing grace. A redeeming love that God the Father loved and chose us before the world was even made. So we are elect exiles that are foreknown in the sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctification means set apart, and it's often in reference to this ongoing growing 
in holiness, but here it's in reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. The Holy Spirit regenerates or renews our hearts. He gives us the gift of faith and produces in us repentance for our sins. Our election becomes a reality through salvation in which the Holy Spirit carries out. At salvation, the Spirit sanctifies us by setting us apart from our sin to God. We are elect exiles that are foreknown and sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus is the result of divine election. As the Spirit works in our hearts and gives us faith, we respond in obedience to the gospel. We repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins, which is what Peter refers to in the next line, and for sprinkling with his blood. Again, here Peter is using Old Testament language that points back to the Old Covenant when God set Israel apart to be his people. We read of this in Exodus 24. It says, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God told Moses to set apart Israel as God's covenant people by sprinkling blood of sacrificed animals on them. And so now Peter is saying that the new covenant people of God have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. The blood of the new and better covenant. So what the law was powerless to do, transforming the hearts of the people so that they could obey the word of God, the blood of Jesus is able. Peter is directing his reader's gaze to the cross. to the cross where our Savior shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins. Peter begins this letter by rooting his reader's identity as the new covenant people of God, saved and secured by the triune God. Do you see the Trinity acting out here? The Father chose them. The Son accomplish their salvation by his blood and the spirit applies the salvation. And so Peter ends his greeting with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Suffering Christians everywhere should be encouraged to endure faithfully as they look back at this great salvation of our triune God. And as they look forward with hope, to the time we will receive our eternal inheritance. 
And so with this identity, this new identity in Christ, we find grace and peace multiplied. Christians are those who are chosen by God and called to live in this world as exiles. We are chosen by God. And in closing, I want to leave you with these two points of application. Number one, you are an exile. Because we are exiles, we will never fully belong to this world. So let go of it. Don't live for what this world lives for. We must live as citizens of heaven, living lives that are holy, lives that are obedient to the God who saved us. And if we live this way, you will face rejection. You will face hostility and persecution. But your hope isn't in this world. You are more than an exile, though. That's my second point. You are an elect exile. What would that free you today of if you actually believed it? Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be chosen? Do you want to be cherished? Do you want to be a part of something that's bigger than you are? Well, if you are a Christian, then you are. You are eternally loved by God the Father. You are set apart by the Holy Spirit and you are united with Jesus Christ. Regardless of how bad our circumstances may appear, God is sovereign and he is the one who has known us intimately before the foundation of the world. And because God has chosen us, we belong to him. And so no amount of suffering can separate us from him and from the future hope that we have in him. We can stand firm in the grace of God because the God who elected us is the God who brings about the very salvation that he offers. If before the creation of the world, God chose you, and if he sent his son to die for your sin, he will take care of you no matter what suffering comes your way. The election of God strengthens believers in a hostile world. Let's pray.